Ryan, welcome to the Creators Canvas. Great to be here, sir. <laughs> so where I wanted to start this conversation was, could you share a little bit about your journey of becoming an actor and activist? I know those are two really important pieces of your life and yeah. we'd love to hear more. Actor. Actor, honestly, man, my parents were very involved in making sure that when I was a child, I got everything. Right. Mm. And in, I am mixed race. I'm Chinese and African-American. So I was definitely involved in those two communities and then some and had a very diverse sort of upbringing. Yep. And my parents put me in the arts and sports very early. And mm. so I was taking tap dancing and singing, piano and acting classes mm. when I was like seven, eight years old. Quite the variety. Yeah. But also playing like t-ball, baseball, basketball football at that age too. Mm. So what I really gravitated towards was the performance aspect, like acting and singing. Mm. And those are some of my most enjoyable classes. And then I got really good at sports, right? In high school. So I was an All-American and that sort of took over all my time. But the, the acting dream was sort of still there. Mm. In college, I you know was majoring in business. So my parents, and I was getting internships and making a lot of money every summer. Yep. My parents really wanted me to focus on that. But every summer, my parents were very scholastic and very <laughs> serious. Like I, every summer, we, me and my brother would have to like have like a PowerPoint presentation and present to, to them. Like, ah. this, is what, this is what our next five years are going to be, mom and dad. Oh, my and, gosh. And so I remember always incorporating like, hey, I want to go to this acting studio to take classes instead of doing this internship this summer. And my parents would always be like, yeah, let's, no, let's just, you're going to keep working in your internship and you're going to eventually get a job out of school and blah, blah, blah. Uh -huh. And so I kept listening to them, you know, it sounded like it was a smart thing to do. Like, yeah, acting is kind of a pipe dream and people don't really make it. And it's, you know, mm. kind of a fantasy. And that's what I allowed myself to believe until I graduated. And I was like, I am not passionate about finance at all, you yeah. know? Now that I'm on my own in the real world with this degree that I earned, I'm like, do I want to do this for the rest of my life? The answer was like, absolutely no. Mm. So I didn't. And I moved to New York on a whim with like no money. And, but I had two wow. good friends that I could crash on their couches. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciated them for that because I was able to, you know, crash on their couches for months and sort of yep. figure out what I wanted to do with my life and also figure out what acting was. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Cause I had no idea. I had no connections in the business. Mm -hmm. I, all I knew is like, I liked watching movies. I liked how they made me feel. I wanted to be, you know, a contributor on that, in that screen that I saw that gave me that feeling. That's all I knew. Mm -hmm. And so eventually I started researching training, right? I went to mm -hmm. studios but the studios were sort of like, you know, you come and go as you please. And there's kids that aren't taking it seriously. And they're, mm. you know what I mean? Yeah. And some of them have like this cult mentality that I wasn't trying to be a part of. So <laughs> I started auditioning for drama schools. You know, I auditioned, I was in New York. So I auditioned for NYU and Juilliard and Yale. Mm -hmm. and, and I got into USC. Wow. And so that's how I really got, USC taught me everything I know about acting. You know, I graduated in 2017 from their, from their master's program in acting. And then sort of after that came the activist part, right? Mm -hmm. Like USC taught me 
really our program, at least at the time, was like, who are you? I, we don't want to see acting. We want to know who you are and we want that. We want it, the acting to come from your understanding of self. I was okay. taught that. Fascinating. Yeah, I was taught that character is a smaller part of yourself that you expand to be your whole self for, for the time that you're playing that role or the time that the camera's on you, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it taught me empathy for not, my, not only myself, but for others and for these characters that I'm playing, right? I can access their humanity because I am a human just like them. Is there a part of me that could have been just like them, whether they're a villain, you know, an anti-hero, or just a regular protagonist, mm-hmm. right? I, I, I found it astounding that I could find a piece of them that was me. It was just me. It wasn't me putting on a character or putting on an act. Like it, it resonated from within me. And then I just made that expand to, to my whole self mm-hmm. while I was doing the role. Mm-hmm. And so that helped me actually understand myself in a way that made me fight for myself and others um, when I started creating content. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so for a very long time, I never talked about sort of my mixed identity, the struggles that I felt like I had to go through to to sort of uh, figure out my identity in that way. And also the repression that I just committed to, to, to survive in the social climate in America, I guess, you know? Mm-hmm. And so when I started creating content, I started talking about that struggle and People started resonating with it. I started growing. You know, people found my voice impactful. And so I started seeing my voice as impactful when I never did before. And yeah, here I am. Here I am. Woo, okay. So like, <laughs> <laughs> talk. I was talking for a long time. I appreciate no, it. That was so beautiful. So there's so much there I want to unpack. So the first thing is the leap that you took to move to New York and pursue your dreams of exploring what it even meant to be an actor. What spurred you on to take that risk? Because oftentimes, and I'm sure you've seen this, whether it's with your audience or with the people around you, you know, we are so close to that last step of you know, letting go of control and just seeing where the world takes us, but it's so hard to take that leap. So for yeah. you, why did you do it? <laughs> you know, it's funny, it's, it was hard for me to, it was, People say it's hard to take that leap to do what you want to do. Mm-hmm. It was so hard for me to continue to do what I didn't want to do. Mm. That, it, that it didn't feel like a leap when I decided to do it. It felt like a relief when I decided mm. to pursue my passion. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I've, I do. I'm still broke and still like, you know, like not doing well. I just finally was like, well, at least I'm doing what I want to do. Mm-hmm. I'm not making any money. Yep. <laughs> I have no money in my bank account, but at least I know that I'm heading in a direction that I want to go, you know? Completely. And I think what you're speaking to, and I'm curious if this resonates with you, is, you know, wisdom tells us that one of the most dangerous places that you can be is in comfort, because when you're in comfort, that's when it's the hardest to take that jump. But then when you are so frustrated and disgusted with the current situation that you're in, Mm -hmm. then the opposite end of that reality is the only thing that you have on your mind. And then that's what pushes some people to take that jump. And I think, you know, there's this term in corporate America called golden handcuffs where 
Uh, yeah, if you heard of it, yeah. And I think that is such a beautiful example of, you know, how we can, people can get trapped in that comfort uh-huh. and then, you know, never take that jump. So yeah. the, the other thing that you mentioned was when you started acting, you know, this journey of finding self and what was that moment where you finally had that realization of, oh my gosh, this is what acting is. And I found, I finally understand mm. what it means to find self. It was actually in, so, so man, I'm just tapping back into New York in my time there, like as a 22 year old or something, I was very young mm-hmm. and how naive I was, but how driven I was. Mm. And my first audition for drama school was Yale. And I was so confident that I would get in because this mm. is just like, I took this leap. It's meant to be. Yada, yada, yada. I do the first round. I don't even get past the first round of auditions. Okay. And Yale is set up in the way that they don't come to New York. You have to take your ass on a train to New Haven, Connecticut, <laughs> right? And, yeah. And reserve a hotel room mm-hmm. because, you know, if you get past this first round, you're going to stay that night and then audition again the next day. Mm. So I paid for a hotel room because I was so confident that I get there. It's snowing. It's cold. I audition. Don't make it past the first round. And I take my ass on the train. I don't even, I'm just like, I'm not staying in this place. <laughs> I don't even get a refund for my hotel. I just get on the train, go back to New York, yeah. kind of defeated. And I called my brother because he went to Yale. So that's why I was like, oh, wouldn't it be dope if I got into Yale for my MFA? He did undergrad. It was just meant to be. and didn't get yes. in. It'd be a story. deflated. Yeah. Completely deflated. Mm. And he's just like, you got more auditions to do, man. Like, just do those auditions Mm -hmm. and see what happens. This is just one school. So I go to NYU, bomb that audition too. (laughs) Go to (laughs) Juilliard, bomb that audition. Mm -hmm. And just a series of other schools that are like in London. And I don't get get into any of those. Mm -hmm. And so USC was my last audition. Mm. It was my last audition. And it was my last choice. Yep. It was just an audition that I was like, oh, I guess I'll audition for USC too. And so I wake up that morning. There's a blizzard outside. I wake up late. And in my head, I'm talking to myself. And I'm just like, it's over. Like I didn't, I, why, what, who do I think I am? Why, what did I think I was doing when I moved out here with this stupid pipe dream? I should just give up. I shouldn't go to this audition. And I should just go back home, work for that financial company that, that, you know, would offer me a job, mm-hmm. make a, make money. And just, that's my, going to be my life. Like my parents were, were right in, in guiding me towards that goal. That's the smart and safe, you know, choice. And something in me was like, nah, fam, like, I know you're late right now, but like, at least go show up. Mm. So I show up late and the head of MFA teacher, Andy is talking and every teacher at every school gives a talk to the pr- prospective students before they audition. Mm-hmm. But this guy was different. Okay. He was saying, you know, we see a lot of people come here and they put on a show and they're performative and they try to impress us. We don't want to see that shit. Mm. <laughs> we want to see people get up there and be real. I don't want to see any acting. That's not what, that's not what we want you for. We want to see who you are and see if you're courageous and can just, say these words without trying, you know, to put anything on them. Can you just be? And to me, I was like, damn, this is different. 
than any other school. All the other schools were like, hi guys, how you doing? High five. Yeah, were you ready to audition? You know? <laughs> so this was like gritty and raw and real. Mm. And so now I'm like enthused about this. So I step into the audition room and they tell you when you audition to not look them in the eye, not to look your auditioners in the eye, mm-hmm. to look over them because you don't want to be, you know, affected by, you know, but I said, fuck that. I'm gonna look them in the eyes. And so <laughs> I did that. And while I'm doing that, I'm, I'm witnessing in real time what they really think about my audition and their facial expressions are like, what the, what is he doing? Oh no. Cause I did, I memorized the Shakespeare monologue, but I didn't read the play. Didn't do any work and homework about the character and what he's going through and what he's talking about. I was just like, he seems angry. I'm just going to yell. <laughs> so I yell this whole first monologue. I see their faces. They're like, Oh God, I can tell by looking at their faces. They did not enjoy that. And so I start my second monologue and I, and while I'm doing it in my head, I'm like, man, they fucking hated that first monologue. I'm such an idiot. This is, I'm done. Like, Mm. and I'm thinking all these thoughts while I'm doing my second monologue and I forget my words. And instead of being like, oh, I'm so sorry. Can I do that again? I just sit down in the chair Mm -hmm. and everything that's going through my mind is like, I'm a failure and I'm a fuck up and Mm -hmm. I, I should just go back home. And this whole three month, four month span in New York was a waste of fucking time that I've lost you know what I mean? Mm. And I think like two minutes go by where just me just like fighting back tears, sitting in that chair, hopeless. And they kind of just they kind of just let me do it and observe me. And then finally, you know, Andy gets out of his chair, comes up to me and puts his hand on my shoulder. And he's like, I know you're going through a lot right now. Oof. And it's very evident. And I know you're fighting back tears. But all these emotions that you're having, you don't need to fight them. You can just let you can just let them be. And and for us, we just want to see you do your monologue from there. Don't judge yourself. Don't think you're a failure. Don't think any of those thoughts. Just start your monologue with how you feel right now. Mm. So he goes back to his chair and I do. And I'm saying these words. Basically, I feel like for the first time and I'm crying and all these words make sense and there's pain, but it's connected to the words that I'm saying and this character and what he's saying and what he's been through. And then after I'm done, it's like, I, I'm like, whoa, he comes back up to me. And he's like, how, how did that? So how did that feel? I was like, I don't know. I've never felt that before. I felt like I blacked out. <laughs> and he, and he's like, I think we'll be seeing you. And so I got in like the next, I had to go to another callback, but I got in. Um, but to answer your question, that's when I've understood what acting is and what acting can do, you know? Yeah, and I can't imagine how seeing you felt in that very moment where he came up to you and was like, hey, I know you're going through a lot and you feel all these emotions that you're trying to hold back, but just wanted to give you this reassurance that let them through and let it show in your acting. Yeah, And it's crazy how you had this like dichotomy of like trying to be something that maybe you weren't in the first, you know, go around in that audition. And the second is when you like let all of that go. And yeah, you let your emotions show through in your acting. Yeah. And so, you know, when I think about that, I think about how validating that must have felt because you then were doing something that was genuinely you. And then for you to have got in and been like, wow, like 
my genuine self is enough. Yeah. And I think the incredible thing we were kind of talking about before the call is when we work with brands, you know, brands look at us. And I think for you and I, at least from what I can tell from my conversation with you, Ryan, is you are who you are on your content is who you are in real life. And so because there's that connection, whenever like a brand or you get into like, you know, acting school or what, what may have you and they want to work with you or, you know, they let you in or you're accepted. It's like, oh, my gosh, because the person I am in my content is who I am in real life. This feels so validating that they would want to work with me, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've never really broken it down that way, but that's true. Mm. And I think that's why it's easier for me to make decisions when it comes to the people that I work with and brands. Yes. It's like, okay, you're talking to me as if you don't know who I am when who I am is in my content. So like you yep. really didn't do any, you really aren't paying attention. Like you really just see my numbers and want to work with me because of my numbers, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's you kind of feel like a, a piece of meat a little bit, you know? Exactly. So one of the other things that you talked about earlier was you made content because, you know, you started to see, you know, little bits of characters that you played and you saw a little bit of yourself in those. And then now you create content to then try to do that same thing for other people and in your audience. So one of the great things that I love that you did was mixed messages. Mm. What inspired, what spurred that series and what did mm. you learn from doing all of those interviews? What spurred on that series was meeting, a, a meeting another Chinese and black Blasian for the first time at USC. Mm. and also realizing how different we were, but how we completely understood each other at the same time. Like mm. I grew up in a demographic that had no black people. It was yep. Chinese, at least for my early formative years, mm -hmm. which was white and, and Asian and conservative Republican. Mm. And he grew up in New York mm -hmm. with Dominicans and, and Puerto Ricans, you know what I mean? And black yeah. people. And so even though we grew up completely and his and my dad is black and his his dad is chinese mm. so even though we grew up completely different we were still very grounded in our culture cuz you know he was very much raised by his chinese side mm. and his black side and i was too so i wanted to share that right that like cuz i think often too if you're a token in a you know in a white space mm -hmm. or just as a token period you're the only one of your kind in a space yep you think because society treats you like you are the spokesperson for your race, that that's who you are and that's who you're supposed to be, right? That there's no diversity and you don't know, you haven't met other black people and been in Literally. black communities. So you think that's like what blackness is, yeah. you know? And then you meet, you know, later on in my childhood, I met, I, I, I worked in the black community and ran for a track club in the black community. And I was like, oh, there's so much diversity here. Black people aren't this one thing that these, when I was a token, they were telling me I needed to be, right? So meeting, you know, my friend who was Chinese and black taught me like, there's diversity within Blasians. There's diversity within even Chinese and black Blasians mm. that are just like you. And so for me, that was like one of the first interviews that I did because I wanted to share this experience that maybe no one else would ever First of all, no one else would ever really share because it's yep. such a, a niche thing, but that people would definitely resonate with, you know, that that aren't just Chinese and black, that just have always that have been that have felt like they haven't belonged or have felt like if they're mixed, they have to choose, which is never the case. Right. So that was sort of the catalyst for that, for sure. 
Okay, so Ryan, it's so fascinating because one of the things that I'm picking up on is this theme of what drives you. And what that theme is, is making sure people feel heard and represented, you know, whether that was because you created the mixed messages series or whether that's through the content that you make on social media now. Why is that so important for you and where does that come from? I think it comes from feeling like I was just feeling misunderstood. I think also on a d- an even deeper level, just proving that my existence wasn't a threat. Because like I said, I grew up mm. in a community that was where I was the only black kid mm-hmm. and a community that had a, hist- a, a racialized history, right? It used to be a sundown town. What does um, sundown mean? Sundown town means there no black people can be outside um, oh, wow. when the sun goes down. Okay. And of course that extends to people of color, but you know, back then it was mostly black and white. Yeah. And also a town that had a history of anti-Asian violence that they swept under the rug as well when the Asian population started moving in, mm. you know? And I grew up in LA after the LA riots. So that, mm. that, that was like the highest time of tension between the Asian and black communities. Mm-hmm. And so I'm growing up in this environment where people are afraid of me <laughs> for just me being black, you know? Yeah. And it's not even me being black, it's them being racist and, and also them being conditioned to think that I'm a threat. It has nothing to do with my blackness. Beautifully said. I have to say that. Nothing to do with me or my blackness. It's societal conditioning, right? And mm-hmm. unacknowledgement of past wrongdoings that continue to perpetuate through time when they aren't acknowledged, right? Yep. Um, and redressed. So really, like everything that I do sort of revolves around not only taking care of my child self, and making sure my child self is heard and understood. Mm. But but also, you know, by doing that, extending a hand to kids that feel that way now, yep. and also to the kid in people who have grown up and have never addressed these issues and sometimes never even understood that that was a problem, yet they feel like, I feel like there's something hindering me from 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 speaking with my true voice and how I truly feel. Because I felt mm. that way for so long, you know? And every day I'm unraveling another part of myself and being vulnerable and, and being courageous. And then also surrounded by people who are doing the same thing now that I've done this for a minute. And that's all I want to do. That's all I want to do really, you know, acting is great. And, but only as a tool to continue to do that purpose that I just talked about, you know, acting used to be, I want to be famous, you know, but now it's like, okay, well, acting, actually, I can sit, choose to say yes and no to certain roles, right? Mm-hmm. Which is becoming easier and easier in terms of, do I want to do this role? What is this going to mean? How is this going to affect, not my image, but like the impact that I can have and the impact that I want to have, you know? Yep. And sometimes it's a hard decision because it's like, of course, you know, if I take this role, it's going to help me get a bigger platform, but I have to judge the cost of like what I'm doing in it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, literally. The cost some, to your soul. And there's some crazy content out there. There's some crazy directors that, that you know, there's abusive behavior in this industry. And so, yeah, to answer your question, that's, that's, that's what it is. And one of the things that you mentioned was, you know, whenever you are this token in a community, a community yeah. you know, you've, you started to internalize that, hey, maybe I am a threat. And that started to form your internal yes. identity. And 
what I think is incredible is you are now speaking to people that were in your place and they're a token in their community. And think about this, like, you know, their internalization process that they feel like they're a threat is like starting to solidify, but then mm-hmm. like your content comes in right in front of yes. it. And it's like, wait, okay, actually, this is a different perspective I've never heard before. Like, let me explore yeah. this. And the moment that becomes internalized, I think that's where our inner child becomes so deeply scarred. And that's yeah. what takes so long for us to reflect on and heal from. But if we can try and catch that before it gets internalized for you yeah. know, these people that we care about so much, I think that goes so unnoticed and is so important. I, uh, man, this is, you are one of the greatest interviewers I've ever talked with. I'm just going <laughs> to let you know that. Because you listen in the way and, and your responses are amazing. I just had to say that. But yeah, it's thank you. Very true because man, I a lot of times I'm like, damn, well, what if I had I wanna be the I wanna be the person that I wish I had. Yep. When I was a kid. Yep. Do you know what I mean? Hundred percent. Because like you said, like a, being a threat did solidify in my head. And still to this day, when I walk outside in my community, sometimes I'm like it's always about, it's not always, but I have to fight appeasing and making sure that people are comfortable because I feel I did that my whole childhood, like convincing these people that I'm not a threat and making these people feel comfortable at the cost of my own sanity and the cost of my own sort of yep. well-being. I was like, I just need to make sure these people know that, like, that I'm, I'm, I'm not the criminal that they think I am. Mm-hmm. And and I'm still sort of healing from that. Yes. And and the, and one of the ways that I heal is like trying to make sure that there are kids out there that understood stand that they're not alone, mm-hmm. and that they are not a threat. Right. It's society yep. that is making these people think they are a threat when they're not, and they don't have to do anything to convince people otherwise. Yep. Right. Beautifully said. And you know, on the topic, Ryan, of you know being someone that you wish you had when you were younger. And, you know, it kind of brings me to this topic of, you know, role models. And one of the things that you've discussed before is, you know, three people that you look up to are, you know, Grace Lee Boggs, Yuri Kutayama, mm. and Fred Kordomatsu. Yeah. What do you look up to in those three people? When did I say that? I remember, <laughs> I remember saying that, but damn. <laughs> you did your research. Uh, Fred Kordomatsu, I mean, look, I'll start with him. Just Japanese internment. That was a crazy time. And he was, you know, one of the forefront leaders in talking about what that experience was like for him. Mm. And I think in a lot of Asian cultures, East Asian cultures, you know, specifically he comes from Japanese culture, I come from Chinese culture. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about that stuff. Yep. We hold it in and we repress it because we feel like we don't want to become across as weak. Yep. You know? And so for him to do that at the time that he did it was was astronomical in terms of making sure that people understood the injustice that this was and how racist it really was, you know, and, and then humanized this ethnic group that mm. this atrocity was perpetuated against, you know. Grace Lee Boggs, I mean, you know, Chinese fellow Chinese American, you know, reminds me a lot of my mom. She married a black man from the South, just like my mom, mm. very outspoken about what needs to be done in order for this country to heal itself. It was very, very, very real about, about sort of 
the the racial hierarchy in this country and how it 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 deteriorates all of our humanity, not just black people, not just Asian people, white people, everybody, yes. everybody's humanity, the whole fabric, the whole fabric of this country, and 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 the fact that the country was founded on that those ideals, you know what I mean, mm. to separate us and divide us. You're Christiana because she was right by Malcolm X, you know, and and Malcolm X is is one of my heroes, one of the most hated men in American history because people don't understand who he truly was and what he actually was about. Mm. And especially, you know, they focus on the, on the, on the militant Malcolm X when he was in the nation of Islam, you know, and, and also don't really understand who he was then. Right. Yep. They focused on, and to me, he wasn't really militant in the sense where he's like gunning for people. He was just very, very adamant about defending his people and loving his people. You know, because people yep. were lynching and murdering and castrating us and burning us alive. Yeah. And we're like, okay, well, then we'll have guns to defect, to, to protect ourselves. But no one's going in the streets and murdering white people. We're just protecting ourselves. Right. But they paint this picture in history as if he was gunning for white people and he never was. And, and especially towards the end of his life, if I've, I suggest everyone reading the autobiography of Malcolm X and getting to the end, because a lot of people don't get to the end. Mm. He traveled to Mecca towards the end of his life. And when I say the end of his life, he was assassinated. So yeah. I don't mean like he died of old age. The end of his life, towards the end of his life was his late 30s, yeah. you know, mid 30s. And he goes to Mecca and he sees white people and he sees Latinos and he sees Middle Easterners and he sees Asians and black people all together, right? Holding hands, you know, for a common cause and a common love for each other. And when he came back, he's like, I'm out of the nation of Islam now. I want to start my own organization. I want to bring these people together. And that's when they assassinated him. Mm. You know what I mean? When he posed a threat to bring everyone together. That's why they met, murdered. I'm sorry, I'm on a soapbox right now. But I'm no, just going to finish. That's why they please. murdered, you know, I'm okay when he starts speaking out, not just for black people, but against the Vietnam War and how inhumane it was, assassinated. Mm. Medgar Evers, assassinated. Fred Hampton, bringing together you know, poor whites in the South, Asians from every social class, black people and Latinos from every social class, right? The system knows the, the threat that that poses when you bring people together, right? Mm. You can't be manipulated. Yep. And so they assassinated a 21 year old, uh, point blank, shot him in the head. So this is, this is the battle that I'm talking about, right? Like for me, I'm like, okay, so I can make cool content that helps people out. Like, that's that's great. And that's the role that I play. But I understand the people that came before me and what it costs for them. You know, so if I can do this every day and just make sure that kids feel seen and heard and and tell the truth from my perspective and, and hope it makes a difference, that's what I'm going to do. It's incredible because I think what you're touching on, Ryan, is this concept that, you know, we stand on the shoulder of giants without mm -hmm. even realizing it sometimes. Mm -hmm. And also with those people having made those sacrifices, one of the best ways to make sure those sacrifices don't go in vain is how we choose to then live our life yes. and honor the sacrifices that they made. Because if they made those sacrifices and society ended up doing nothing with it, then mm -hmm. as sad as it sounds, those sacrifices that they made would go in vain because yeah. It didn't change anything. Yeah. And it's this thought of how can we make sure that these heroes in history aren't lost and that mm -hmm. you know their sacrifices are honored in with how we live. Mm -hmm. 
And so, you know, I think it starts to get into the concept of purpose, which is like something I've been reflecting on a lot lately. What does purpose mean to you? Man, purpose is it's very complicated, yet it's very simple, mm-hmm. you know? I think my purpose really is to <laughs> serve serve others. But mm. by, by serving my, myself and recognizing my own humanity in myself and treating myself with respect mm-hmm. and loving myself, and then understanding that we're all human and we're all connected by this humanity, me loving myself is loving other people. And me loving other people is loving myself. So they go hand in hand. And I really do think that that is my prime purpose, right? Everything else is icing, like having mm. followers on Instagram and being able to talk about that icing, having an acting career and be, be, being in TV shows and movies, that's icing on the cake. But the, my primary purpose is you know, to, to serve others and, and make sure others are taken care of. And, you know, I love smiling and laughing and I hope to give that to people as well. Cause that's healing, you know, that's it. Service to others. Beautifully said, I recently took a beginner's improv class for fun. And, you know, <laughs> in that I got to kind of dive a little bit into your world, which was scene work mm-hmm. and, a lesson that the teacher taught us when we were learning you know, to do scene work was to create the best scene possible, you have to be fully in service to your partner in the scene. Mm-hmm. And that was a concept that took me a long time to wrap my head around because mm-hmm. before I was completely caught up in, okay, how am I coming across? You yeah. know, what lines do I need to say? Yeah. You know, am I going to be funny when I do this scene? Mm-hmm. But then it's like he tells me the opposite where it's like, don't think about any of that. Just think yeah. about how you can best serve your partner in the scene. And the yes. scene will be absolutely incredible. What do you think about that? Does that resonate? That completely resonates. I took a lot of improv classes, you know, before drama school and after or during drama school. And, awesome. But they helped me a lot. In yes. this movie that I recently did, it was a comedy. And the director was always like, hey, if you have anything you want to do, just do it. So I got to improv a lot and I kind of love to do that. If you know the character and if you're grounded in what's go- the reality of the scene, mm-hmm. then you can, you can play. It's fun. But I remember specific instances in drama school where me and my classmate would be on stage doing a play mm-hmm. and they would forget their lines, right? Yep. And, and those are the most alive moments for me because I'm just like, We'd make we'd be making eye contact, and we'd done this scene hundreds of times before. And I know they flubbed that line, and I know they're pausing because they don't know their line. But they can see in my eyes, and I can see in their eyes, like we're in this together. We're gonna figure it out. Oof. And 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 those that's so fun for me. Yes, because the audience has no idea, right? Mm-hmm. And and suddenly the moment is alive in a way that it hasn't been before, and hasn't been ever, and never will be because yep. that that instance will never be repeated again. You know, the lines will be repeated again, but that sort of lively moment. That magic. That I used to be afraid of is like, oh, let's go, man. (laughs) Who knows where this is going to go, but we're going to come back to it. We know what we're doing. (laughs) Eventually, you're going to remember your line or you won't. And then we'll just move on to a different place. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And and also instances where I've forgotten my line, Mm -hmm. you know, with a scene partner or just in a show where I'm doing a monologue on stage by myself and I have to just figure it out. It's like... Dude, just pause, look at the sky, touch the ground or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's going to be fine, you know? Yeah. Tricks of the trade, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be on yeah. the lookout for that. 
Yeah. Man, and it's this idea of knowing that the person on the other side, you know, whether it's your scene partner or whether uh-huh. it's your friend or your partner in life, you know, uh-huh. romantically, has your back till the ends of the earth. I uh-huh. recently got back from Europe and met like a grandmother and grandpa there who are like family friends. They're both like 80 years old and super amazing. And I was asking them for advice. I was like, you know, why have you two been together for so long? It was 50 years. You know, what has been the secret to the longevity of y'all's relationship? And they said something so interesting. They said, we think the secret to the longevity of our relationship is the fact that service to the other has always been put at the forefront for each person in this relationship. And they say that they think that is what's starting to get lost in our generation today. Yeah. What do you think about that? I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I mean, you know, we're on social media heavily. Yep. Thank God they have the button where you can press to like not interested in this. Yep. And and then that just, you know, curates your own feed to see what you want. Like Yes. But I still see like a lot of these hot takes that talk about what men should be doing for women and what women should be doing for men on this general mm. scale. And it's just like, well, that's completely throwing away any sort of nuance and understanding that's that comes on a personal level between two people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's talking about gender roles and relationship roles. And it's like, I don't abide by any of that. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like so many people think that this is the way that it should be. They think that like the guy paying on the first date is the most important thing. You know what yeah. I mean? Or or the guy opening the door for the girl is the most important. If they don't do that, then they're not a man and they don't belong in, you know, <laughs> holding my hand. You know, and then same yeah. thing with guys talking about women, you know, how they should look, what they should wear, what makes them, you know, promiscuous and what's makes them not promiscuous. It's like you're not even ta- you're not even talking about an actual woman. You're yeah. talking about an idea of a woman or an idea yep. of a man. You know, and I think like what you what they said was true. This generation, especially with social media and all these hot takes and all these opinions, just free to just fly around the internet and social media and to be consumed by people, we're starting to lose a grip of like actually talking to the person and connecting with that person mm. and understanding what they need and what they want and how they see the world and what works well for for them and if they're gonna, if we're gonna come together in our relationship, what's works for well for both of us, yep. you know, that's all I want. I don't want this, these, these ideas and norms, these so-called societal norms to run our lives when that has nothing to do with your relationship with, or friendship with another human being that is a completely different entity from an idea, mm. you know. I do. And so this is something I struggle with a lot, Ryan, and to challenge you a little bit, you know, so there's this thought that when we have a mass audience, there's only one message that we can give, and that's going to be generalized for the entire population. It's going to be missing that nuance of, you know, one-on-one interaction, like, so for example, what we're having right now. And so how do we then try our best to serve that mass audience when we mm. know the only message that we can provide them is generalized because mm-hmm. it's impossible to give them that one-on-one nuanced attention. I wouldn't say that the message is generalized because we're not talking to an individual person. Mm-hmm. I think you can talk to a mass group of people as if you are talking to an individual person. I think a lot of times when I'm talking to the camera, mm-hmm. when I'm looking at the camera and I'm talking to it, I'm talking to myself a lot of the times. You know, the past self that believed the idea that I'm debunking, you know what I mean? 
the past self that believed in the societal norms that I thought I just had to abide by. I'm talking to like my past self. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I understand when you say like, we have this massive audience. Mm. So it seems like we, but that's on us. You can give a distilled, watered down, safe answer because you want the masses to sort of agree with it. Mm-hmm. Right. Or you can give the personal, authentic, sincere take to the masses that you want. Mm. And you're not afraid because a lot of, a lot of when I first started was like, I want people to agree with me. <laughs> I want yeah. to be well liked instead yes. of like, I, I want to give, agree. I want to tell people what I sincerely feel from the bottom of my heart and whether they agree with it or they don't agree with it doesn't matter. I've told what I feel is well-intentioned and I believe in my heart. Mm. That's where it comes from. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. So you're touching on this concept of, you know, to make the message individualized, what we can do is then speak to our past self mm-hmm. that we wish heard this, mm-hmm. you know, whenever we were there. And mm-hmm. then by doing that, that message can then be spread out and it'll resonate with some people and it won't. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it won't be watered down and yeah. rub someone the right way or the wrong way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when you're doing it too, you're not really thinking about, mm. the, there's priorities, right? You still are thinking yep. about it. We can't, we, we can't help it because we're, of course. you know, we have an audience and we want to make sure that we're conveying messages that re- resonate. But the priority should be like, how do I feel about this? Have I done my due diligence? Do I feel like, you know, within my heart that this is a message that I believe will help people? Mm-hmm. Then that's where I share from. And then however it's received, it's received. Yep. If I've made a mistake, you can acknowledge the mistake and say like, oh, I, I can investigate that part of what I said and and maybe make another video. That's more yeah. content. I don't know. You know? <laughs> yeah, the beautiful thing about that is at the end of the day, it's going to spur productive dialogue. And mm-hmm. so if there was someone that maybe disagreed with what you said, then that's now an opportunity to like hear them out and be like, oh, wow, you're so right. I didn't think about that. And mm-hmm. that's why I think feedback is like such a beautiful gift. And you know, that productive dialogue, I think, is like what is so lost nowadays sometimes, especially on yeah. social media, because it's so easy to hide behind a screen. Yeah. Yeah. And an anonymous profile, too. There's so, <laughs> yeah. many, there's so many anonymous profiles that just say the most outlandish, wild things. And to me, I just I, I have to like I, I am very, you know, ubiquitous with the block button because like in real life there wouldn't be a space for people to say these things to me. Mm. So why am I allowing it on a social media platform? You're going to say this to me. You're going to say this to the followers that are commenting in my comment section. You don't belong here. I'm yep. not going to let you perpetuate your pain and project your pain onto people. And to me, you don't belong here. You wouldn't do this in real life. You're not showing your face. There's no courage whatsoever. Yep. Yes. You need to, you need to leave. And if I have the power to make you leave, I will, I'll do that. You know, at first I used to be like, oh, I'm block people because then they win. I need to clap back and teach them that they're wrong. No, I don't. (laughs) I need to, I can eradicate them from that space because it's not, they're not making it a safe place. They're not willing to listen. There's no reason for them to be there and they wouldn't be there in real life. So goodbye. Yeah. And I don't know if you've ever had an interaction like this, but there's this idea of like killing people with kindness. And even Mm -hmm. something recently, like I got this DM from a guy that was like, 
he said something along the lines of like stop stealing other people's shticks you know and then i was like hey like thank you so much for the feedback like let me know what i can do better and improve on and then i looked back like 24 hours later and he deleted his message because like, <laughs> yeah because in a way it's like this mirror that you You're put right. in front of them because right. they're so used to You're being right. responded with more negativity and toxicity in the moment that it's not responded with that yeah. they're like oh shit like what is this foreign feeling and then it makes them reflect on that yes I think it's so crazy timothy you're a saint <laughs> and yeah yeah it's like i have i have done that in the past too right and it it does do that i remember you know one of my first viral posts mm-hmm. it was a post that i posted on social subtle asian traits this is before i ever started making content this is the very catalyst for me making content was subtle asian traits the facebook page right yes okay awesome <laughs> i posted a, a a like a piece like a paragraph multi-paragraph piece talking about hey i'm black and asian mm-hmm. the anti-blackness in the asian community is rampant and i've experienced it my whole life my mm-hmm. first experiences of racism were not from the white community they're from the asian community and i'm telling you this as a fellow asian because i am asian you know what i mean i also yep. happen to be black and if you have a problem with that, then maybe you are racist and you need to work on that. Mm. And so I did not expect the, the amount of support that I got to come because obviously I'm coming from this place of trauma that Asians don't accept me and don't like me and are yeah. racist. <laughs> but like 90, 95% of the comments were super supportive. And I think I got like 30,000 likes and like 10,000 comments. And so I read every single one of those comments. <laughs> And of course, there was like five percent were like saying racist shit. But there was one dude yep. who like posted this clip of this Asian woman being harassed by black these these black guys in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he said, "You're the you're the kind you're the type of bitch that would like allow this to happen and would be happy that this is happening." Oh <laughs> and I like responded like how you res- how you said you responded, and I was like, first of all, if this happened to you, I would defend you." even though you called me a bitch because I view you as wow. a person in my community that I would want to protect. Mm-hmm. And I don't view these black people as representing all black people. They're just two people that were harassing a woman. Yep. You know what I mean? And he backtracks so hard and he's like, Oh my God, dude, I'm so sorry. I didn't expect you yes. to have this response. And now I'm seeing that I said what I said was kind of crazy. And blah, blah. I was like, it's okay, man. Like just go forth and understand and, and hold this interaction that we've had close to your heart when you continue to move on in the world, you know? Mm. But I did respond to every single other comment that was like that with varying results. Some (laughs) of them that just kept doubling down on racism. And I'm like, oh my God. Like first you call me monkey, then you call me N-word, then you call me, and I'm I'm trying to kill you with kindness and I just have to give up, you know? So sometimes- Sometimes you block and sometimes you kill them with kindness. And yep. I think the I think the number one thing is like not allowing your ego to to get involved. Do you know what yes. I mean? Because imagine you try to kill someone with kindness, they and they respond back with some crazy racist shit. Yep. It's like then it's like, do you keep killing with them with kindness? Do you ignore them? Yep. You, you know what I mean? Like it's all has to do with how you deal with it in your own psyche, in your mind, and making sure that you stay grounded and yes. understanding what the purpose is, right? Your overall purpose, not this one-on-one interaction that can bog you down and make 
and, and can, can deteriorate not only your mental health, but also your message when you yep. go back to make more content. You know what I mean? So that's why like the block button, I'm super ubiquitous, but at the same time, you're so right about killing them with kindness, right? But that requires a lot of strength, especially if you're getting yes. a lot of a lot of comments like that. You know? Yes. And it's definitely draining because for some reason, us as humans, like the negative comments can always stick out more always. than like the 95% that are all yeah. positive, you know? Yeah. And it's like, why can't I focus on the positive? Yeah. So Ryan, you know, what so we've been focusing on, you know, kind of the um, you know, negative feedback that we've received as content creators. Mm-hmm. But I would love to hear a story of you know, a positive interaction that you had with your audience that really touched you, you know, for yeah. me as a content creator, I can think of some, you know, DMs or messages that I've gotten and conversations that I've had with, you know, these like random people that are like yes. all over the world. And I, after those conversations, I'm like, okay, this is it. Like my cup is full and the clarity of my purpose is strong. And I yes. had this conviction. Yes. I'm lo- I'm looking down at my phone because I, yeah, please. I save all of my yep. positive and I save some of my negative. <laughs> but I'm just seeing if I could just like read one of these. Yeah, please. Uh, I'll read this one. Ryan, I love your page. Our kids are 100% African-American and 100% Indian. We need to see more people mm-hmm. in social media claiming their entire identity. We tell our children they never have to choose one or the other because they're both 100% mommy and 100% daddy. So that's mm-hmm. just like making an impact on parents and children. Yep that are dealing with these sort of identity issues, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to, they're, they're so long. I don't want to read like super long ones, <laughs> but yeah, like I've had the, the positive things, man, they make me keep going because yes, they're so different than sort of like if you're mass producing content Yep. and it's not really sort of impactful on a deep level. It's sort of like light and funny in seven seconds and people just put an emoji on it. It's, <laughs> It's so different than like receiving like a DM or a paragraph where they're like, hey, I'm not Chinese and black. I'm like Mexican and white, but I've always felt the way that you're talking about. And I've never been able to like articulate it and you articulated and you made me feel seen. Thank you. Like that to me is like why I do this shit, (laughs) you know? Yes. Not for that. Not for like my post going viral. You know, I'd love for the posts that are impactful to go viral, Mm -hmm. you know? But it's not most of the, most of the time like the content that I create that people like freely resonate with and send me DMs and send me long comments are not the ones that go viral, oh, and and but that is sort of but the ones that go viral are sort of like the short ones that you know are, are sort of funny things about my life that I I think are funny but they're yeah. not as impactful as sort certain the ones that don't because mm-hmm. the ones that don't like I'm writing paragraphs you know. Yep. I'm writing paragraphs or I'm explaining a, a concept and it's taking longer than, you know, 30 seconds. Yes. The quick shit that's funny, it's always going to be, at least on these short form content platforms, the stuff that can go viral. Yep. Because it's highly shareable, ones. it's entertaining, yep. it's quick, don't have to think that hard, you get the message right away. Yep. And so I really love sort of platforms like we're having right now where you get to talk and explain and extrapolate and go deep into these topics and talk about our feelings behind it, you know, the impetus of why we do it. Yep. That to me is very impactful. And so, but I do understand the role that short form content has, and I do know how to utilize it in order to get the, the impact that I want people to, or the message that I want people to receive, you know? Yeah. 
yeah, and at the end of the day, I think we kind of see it in a similar way, which is it's just a means or a tool to then yeah. have, you know, that greater impact that we want. You know, what you just described is, you know, this ability to make a difference or make a change in someone's life. And, you know, with that, I know you recently won Change Maker of the Year Award, Ryan. Mm. Congratulations. Thank what you. did that mean to you? It meant, first of all, I, I, I thought they made a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> When they emailed me, because I was like, me? Changemaker of the year? What did I do? Yeah. I didn't really think that I did anything, you know? Mm. Because to me, I've, I guess I've made this not feel like work anymore. Oh. Yeah. It just feels like I'm just like sharing myself and talking about stories that I've been through. You know, I've worked before. I've worked nine to five corporate yep. jobs that felt like work <laughs> and it felt like something I didn't want to do. So now that I'm doing something I do want to do and I'm making an impact in the way that I want to make it, it doesn't feel like work. So when I first got that message about the award, I was like, I accepted it. But in my mind, I'm like, are they going to like, you know, be back and be like, sorry, we, sorry, we thought you were, we actually evidently emailed you this email when we were supposed to meet it. They email it to somebody else. That's how I really felt. Yeah. The, in, like, the intern made a fuck up, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, I, that's how I actually felt. And then, you know, when they flew me and my family to DC and accept the award oh and give my speech and I met the whole board, it's like, oh no, y'all really fuck with me. Like, you really yep. watch my content and care. And I was like, whoa. I didn't know that I had this impact or that what I was saying really mattered this much or my voice really mattered that much. It was sort of a, a a beckoning and a I guess a beacon of hope to keep going in the way in the direction that I was going yeah you know because sometimes you get discouraged sometimes you're like you know you the the societal norms start to creep in on you again and tell you like you're not progressing you're not growing your impact is shrinking you're becoming irrelevant you know and then someone gives you an award or acknowledges you in a way or someone sends you a DM and you're like oh no even though I haven't like grown my followers as much as I've wanted to in the past month, I'm still making an impact, yep. you know? And I think well-deserved, you know, right? Thanks, I'm man. sure a lot of, you know, the remnants of the imposter syndromes that you feel, you know, kind of internally surface like crazy there because to your point, yeah. you're like, wait, did they, did they email the wrong person? <laughs> Seriously, though. <laughs> as we're wrapping up on time, Ryan, yeah. I'd like to, you know, conclude, you know, with a question from, you know, something I've asked on my page before. And so mm -hmm. for you, I think this would be very appropriate and beautiful to ask, which is when people look at you, what do you think they see? Oh my God, I'm so happy that I that I prepared for this, kind of. <laughs> but I also knew that I would not have a short answer to this. Mm -hmm. Can you ask the question again? <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course. When people look at you, Ryan, what do you think yeah. they see? Sometimes I feel like they see a threat Sometimes I feel like they see a fellow human, mm. you know, and that that feeling varies. It's never one thing or the other. You know, sometimes in my head, I'm like, does this person feel like I'm not black enough? Does this person feel mm. like I'm not Asian enough? You know? Yeah. And then I feel like an imposter. And then I try to make sure that I never respond from a negative place that I think someone else is thinking. Because a lot of times... It's not a lot of the times it's not it doesn't even matter <laughs> what they what you think they think and it's not real. Okay. Right? Like I'm not 
I am not Professor X. I cannot read minds. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes. And sometimes if I'm not careful, I can respond from a place to tra- of trauma to someone yep. who is just like, Ooh. you know, it, it was just irritated by their day. It had nothing to do with me. You know what I mean? Or they had to scratch their back. And so when they were interacting with me, that's the facial expression they made. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? A hundred percent. So, so to me, it's, it is sort of more of a complicated question because it's mm-hmm. going to change um, from interaction to interaction. And my goal is to always come from a place of, of wanting to connect with that other person from a place of love and compassion, empathy, right. And not a place of insecurity or, or trauma or projection, right. Of, of a trauma that I think that they're, that, that I'm getting from them when it's, it's an illusion. Do you know what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. So I hope that answers your question. <laughs> it does, Ryan. And just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on to the Creators yeah. Canvas. And it was a pleasure to have you. It was a pleasure. You're an amazing interviewer. You're going to go far, Timothy. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I have a true passion and purpose for this, so yeah. I hope so. Thank you. <laughs>